0: All right. Uh, I print Would you like paper for notes? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry, it wasn't there last time. Um As those are getting passed around and uh, we're getting settled, uh, thank you so much for having me and letting me teach. It's been fun and helpful and hopefully helpful to you. Uh, I know I've I've learned a lot getting to do this, and it's just deepened my, reminded me that uh, how great God is and how good his word is and trustworthy he is. So uh, I hope it's been encouraging to you uh, and helpful. and one, one other note, just as we, we get into it, um, we are going to be dealing, hopefully, Lord willing, with all the minor prophets today, uh, which I just wanted to make a note that di- there are different, wise, godly Christians interpret passages of prophecy differently, um, and so I'm, I'm going to just sort of do the best I can and interpret it how I interpret it, and uh, I just don't want you to hear me ignoring, I'm not ignoring other views on purpose, we're just doing a flyover, and so um, different people understand kind of God's relationship to Israel today, and what things are going to look like in the future, and I don't know, I just want to make a note, I'm not trying to ignore your view or anything like that if I don't hit it, Um, I'm just going to, we're just going to go through it, and... Down the road, there might be time to talk in more detail or later about what that looks like. So, I don't know. I just wanted to to mention that. And then the last thing as we get into this, uh, I said this to Aaron last night. And so I don't, I'm not 100% sold on this idea, but I'm pretty sold on it. We were listening uh, to music and I wasn't going to bring this up because I thought, well, the group is mostly like a significant amount older than me, so it might not register. But, but you guys, you guys will for sure get, oh, oh, come on, (laughs) that's a fair comment, oh my goodness, let me rephrase, let me rephrase, the group is a a significant amount wiser than I am, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. (laughs) Let (laughs) us enjoy the Andrew that's good. I, good I was hoping I knew I would have one embarrassing moment at least if I was with you for six weeks um, no but if, if now I'm not going to say it, what i <laughs> um, what I said to Aaron was if you can understand a Taylor Swift song you can understand prophecy and I'll broaden that and say if you can understand a romance story you can understand prophecy and here's where I'm coming from In most, we'll say, romance stories, you have boy meets girl, some type of interest, then you have, uh, they're separated or something goes wrong, and over time she starts to wonder, does he really love me? Is he really the one for me? Uh, Are people watching Hallmark? Exactly. I tease my mother-in-law because it's the same movie with different characters. Okay. I've grown to like them, surprisingly. Uh, Yeah. But that storyline of then, you know, right when you think it's not going to work out, the guy comes back, they end up together, they get married, everybody's happy. And if it's a hallmark, there's nobody, no, like, parents involved. So there's no, you don't have to figure anything out. There's no difficulties. They just end up together. They're always (laughs) dead. Yeah, they're removed or, Yeah. So, but with prophecy and with scripture, what you have is God initiates a relationship at the very beginning with humanity, and then once things are broken, he starts following that through the people of Israel, through Abraham and through his family, and you have this love relationship between God and his people that God desires, and that becomes broken. And what the prophets point towards and point us forward to is there will be a day when God does, he moves heaven and earth literally to to make that relationship right. And so it's the ultimate love, it's what everything is is based, all the, rom- the reason we like those romance stories is because there's something resonating in our heart, we know that that is how God has made things. And so God will one day make everything right and the prophets point to that and say, hey, Here's how God's going to restore his love relationship with his people and with the world, all those who repent and trust him. So uh, if you can understand romance stories, you can understand prophecy. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. So let's get into it. Um, Let's finish Ezekiel. Um, what, What we had said in Ezekiel is that God's people are... Uh, are in exile throughout Ezekiel, and they're wondering if uh, their relationship with God is over, and Ezekiel says, no, it's, it's not over. And God shows, if you remember, we talked about his kind of mobile chariot throne and how God's presence is one day going to fill the whole earth. We knew that from earlier, but what Ezekiel kind of fleshes out is this. We get to live this out in the New Covenant. What Ezekiel fleshes out is God's glory is going to fill the whole earth. But it's also going to be revealed in his people corporately as a group. Remember, the church is called the temple. That's the place where God is, dwells and is seen by the world. But even more than that, God's spirit is going to not just fill the whole earth and not just fill God's people corporately, but fill us individually. And that's this amazing privilege that we don't think about maybe as much as we ought in the new covenant, that we have the spirit inside of us living, dwelling inside of us that will never leave us. And so God's relationship with his people, it's not over because of the exile. It's going to be catapulted to this whole new level. And we uh, started walking through Ezekiel. And and um, what I just want to mention, there just a couple high points towards the end of the book. Um, God says in chapter 21, verses 26 and 27... Um, Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. These things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. The turban and the crown. Who wears a crown? King. King. And who wears a turban in the Old Testament system? Priest. Priests. Priests. Priest yeah so what God says is that we 're going to do that someone is going to come that to make this right is going to have to be both a priest and a king and that 's exactly what you get in Jesus the Messiah and you see if you go further into chapter thirty four God talks about how the shepherds of his people that should be caring for his people, namely the priests, are uh, they're fraudulent. They're not they don't love his people. And God then says in now we're in chapter uh, 34 verses 22 through 24, God says I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. God says, I, I'm, I myself am going to come down. There's Jesus as God, Yahweh is coming down. And he's going to make them one shepherd, who we know as the good shepherd. So I, Ezekiel is saying, this relationship, that's going to be secured because God himself is going to come down and be the good shepherd and shepherd his people and care for them. And then the last thing we're going to just hit in Isaiah, we mentioned this already, but I do want to, to read it for us. In chapter 36, uh, starting in verse 22, Uh, God says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. Uh, I'm going to skip down a little bit. I wanted to read the whole thing, but I think it's better to to skip forward here. Uh, He's going to verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what we get to experience in the new covenant. That God's spirit dwells inside us. And this is why when we talk about what it means to be a believer, that it's not just outward actions. It's a change of heart. God God gives us a new heart, puts his spirit inside of us, and writes his law on our hearts. That's what we want to do. Uh, So... Ezekiel assures us that relationship is not over. Let's go to Daniel. Here's the big idea of Daniel. Daniel looks at the whole scope of human history and shows us that God is the ultimate king of everything. God God is the one uh, who will ultimately rule in the end. And we're only going to hit two passages in Daniel. I want you to see... uh, the first one is in chapter 2. The people are in exile, and Daniel, if uh, you're probably familiar with the story, he is able to interpret the king's dream. And the king sees this image. Uh, it has, I'm, gonna, I'm in chapter 2, I'm in verse 31, and I might skip around a tiny bit as we go forward, but you, uh, O king, saw a, and behold a great image exceeding brightness, Uh, the head was the image of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, these are representative of of nations and of people groups, and what ends up happening is he talks about these kingdoms as we go further down. And eventually, it says in verse 44, in those days, uh, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand together. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. God's kingdom is going to... uh, overwhelm and rule over all the kingdoms of the earth is the point in Daniel. And Daniel is emphasizing that, look, you're in exile. Yes, all these kingdoms are going to come through and throughout world history. Some are going to rise, some are going to fall. There's going to be leaders. There's going to be all these different things happening. And yet in the end, God's kingdom will rule over it all. In the end, God will make everything right, end the love story perfectly, and be back with his people. And the way that he's going to do that is through a person, we already know this from the Old Testament, but a really huge spot that is quoted later is in Daniel chapter 7. And he's seeing a vision of God, the Ancient of Days, he calls him, and talks about, his hair being like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. We heard about that throne in Ezekiel with its wheels were burning fire. And then down in verse 13 of chapter 7, somebody comes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's point is this. Yes, God's kingdom is going to rule over everything in the end, and there's going to be one man who's the king of that kingdom. And he's going to be a son of Adam. In Hebrew, the word for man is Adam. And so, he's like a son of Adam, a new Adam, a better Adam. And so... This passage, if you read your New Testament carefully, you'll see it everywhere. Jesus coming back on the clouds of heaven, that's taken from Daniel. Uh, the whole fact that Jesus says, I'm the son of man, that's from Daniel. When he says, I'm the son of man, he's not just saying, I'm a person. He's saying, no, I'm the one in Daniel 7, uh, when, da- when Jesus says, I'm the son of man. So, in Daniel, God is the ultimate king of everything. He's going to rule in the end. He's going to do it through his Messiah. Good so far? Yes. Okay. Now, we are going to, um, we're going to go through the prophets, the minor prophets now, and we're going to go in, as best we can tell, as best scholars can tell, chronological order. So after Daniel, you would flip the page and see um, Hosea, we're going to start in Obadiah. Obadiah was written first. Uh, there's, there's debate over that, but as best we can tell, Obadiah was written first. I'm going to have, I did not grow up going to Awana. And so flipping through the minor prophets is tough for me. You might have to be gracious with me. Uh, Obadiah. Here's what's going on in Obadiah. God's people have. Uh, well, let's let's talk about it this way. You have two sons, Jacob and and they grow up and they have this struggle back and forth. And God uses their um, their brother, those brothers, as an example of his. Uh, his election, his choosing, and he says, "I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau." And he's meaning, I chose Jacob. And what's happened in Obadiah is God's people have lost a battle to to Edom, who comes from Esau. And so they're wondering, like, "Hey, what's going on here? I thought I thought you loved us. I thought what what is happening?" And what God is starting to show, and this is sort of where it connects with us, is that when evil happens to you, you need to remember God's plan is meant to assure you God will judge and make things right in the end. And Obadiah starts the trajectory of the minor prophets and starts defining something that we call the day of the Lord. Have you heard of that? That phrase, before the day of the Lord. And, and what this sets up for is this. Okay, you get wronged, Israel, or Christian. You get wronged, and you wonder, what's going on? Is God for me? Is God against me? What's happening right now? And what Obadiah says is, no. He starts this trajectory of, there will be a day when God makes everything right. We know that. I've said that many times. But through through judgment, there will be no evil unaccounted for. In the end, that's what the day of the Lord assures us. Not only is God merciful, gracious, kind; He'll take any who come to Him. He'll never cast them out. Yet on the other side, for those who are unrepentant and continue to reject Him, there will be perfect righteous judgment. And and we need to be reminded of that. Even in uh, I, I think about this silly things. Uh, you get cut off. You get wronged. You get you know sometimes these minor things can really be a burr under your skin of God. Are you going to make this right? And we know uh, now as New Testament believers, either on the cross or in hell, there will be no injustice in the end. And so Obadiah starts this trajectory to tell us about the day of the Lord. Um, Joel. Joel. That's backwards. I am going to struggle here. Are we, done with Obadiah? we are done with Obadiah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry I'm lagging behind already. I do think the minor prophets it's helpful to kind of get uh get them all together if we can. It really it really is. At least it has been for me. If it's too fast we're recording, you can slow it down later if you want to. (laughs) No, I'm just uh Okay. Joel. Joel's name means Yahweh is powerful or God is powerful, and and what Joel shows through, uh, he uses a locust plague to basically grab Israel and get their attention, and remind them, hey, this is happening to you because you disobeyed the covenant that was in Deuteronomy, and he, Joel starts to explain and expand what the day of the Lord looks like. Obadiah introduces the day of the Lord, Joel expands on the day of the Lord, and basically starts to say that Small judgments that happen in time that we can see. For Israel, it was a locust plague that ate all their food and took everything away. That's that's like should be a um, like a warning light in your car, maybe, or that should trigger to you, hey, this this is just a small picture of what the day of the Lord is going to look like. These these are mini judgments, mini dominoes on the way that ensure that hey, if this is if God is judging here in this mini way, it will happen. In the end, and so it's this warning light of, hey, you need to, and this is the word that we use in the New Testament all the time: repent, turn. Joel defines repentance for the first time. That um, chapter two is is really especially um, if you go to verse twelve. Chapter two is a really important chapter for understanding what is repentance. And it's look, uh, yet even now declares the Lord. He's he's prophesied about these terrible judgments that are coming, both in the present and then finally in the future. And he says, But even now, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And we know, as we've been walking through the Old Testament Joel's just pulling from Deuteronomy. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the heart. And so Joel says, it's not about your, your, uh, your outward repentance. It's about what? Rending your heart, not your garments. And so uh, Joel fleshes out the day of the Lord. And he fleshes out that the way to escape the wrath of God that's coming in the day of the Lord is repentance. It's turning. It's trusting him. Just um, a really beautiful picture of, of God's graciousness. On to Jonah. Jonah's correcting this. Exile is coming on the people of Israel. Jonah was most likely written about 50 years before exile. And the people of Israel hate Gentiles. They hate them. Because they've oppressed them. They're going to oppress them, and they know that they're going to go into exile. And so, they're looking at the Gentiles with hatred. But what Jonah highlights is that God loves the Gentiles. Or we could say God loves everyone. God loves the Gentiles. And uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Jonah... I think we know the story. What I want to hit is this... Uh, Just the love and the care that God has for people. This is what's going on at the very end of Jonah. God makes the plant shade Jonah and then he gets angry that it has died. Um, When the sun rose, verse 8 of chapter 4, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's the love of God, that he, even though he will make all things right, he will judge in the end, there will be the day of the Lord, and yet he's always extending his hand saying, turn to me, repent, trust in me, and I will I love you, I, I will care for you. Uh, as you read your New Testament, Peter, Jesus, and Paul are all put in situations that show they're the opposite of Jonah. Uh, you have Jesus, do you remember when he, he heals uh, the people, Gerasene, Gadarene, the man with the demoniac, the uh, he, the language there is an exact replica of Jonah. He falls asleep in the stern of the ship and he's sleeping and the storm comes. Well, what's Jesus doing? He's sailing to Gentile territory. It's his first contact in Gentile territory. Steps on the land and a demon for this man, screaming, runs at him and falls at his feet. This is Jesus being the opposite of Jonah. Jonah runs in the exact opposite direction, to not share the gospel with Gentiles, and when he preaches, he like hides the message, but God still saves them. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all are put in situations where instead of running, they show that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles, and Jesus ultimately shows he's the he's the one that that makes all of this possible. He's it's Mark five. Go read Mark five. It's awesome. In light of Jonah, um, Jonah runs away. Jesus doesn't run away. Um, Amos, Amos, we are on to Amos, and I think I went the wrong direction. Yep, Amos. They have these contraptions called cell phones that have bibles that you know. That's cheating. That's, That's cheating. <laughs> we tell the junior high group. Uh, what do we we tell it? Wood paper or stone? That's what we tell. No, no cell phones for junior high. Okay. Amos. Um, Amos is answering this response. Judgment is coming on Israel. Exile is coming. Um, They want to know. It's almost like the child that says, but that's not fair. And Amos is answering, no, it is fair. It is fair. And Amos goes point by point to show God never, um, as a parent, sometimes you react in anger and you over. You, I'm learning that you never feel like you did it right. You either feel like it's a little too much or a little too little or I didn't say enough. Or, that's beside the point. <laughs> God is perf- perfectly meets out his justice. So there's never a, a, a place to say, that was too far, God. That was too much. You you overreacted. And Amos goes point by point to show, no. No, God doesn't overreact. God hasn't overreacted at all. It's perfect, exact justice. Um I put a map on here just because I, I think this is really a neat, um, a neat thing to see, sort of how uh, sometimes we read the prophets, and it's really, really, really easy to just read through it, and you don't know the places, and you don't really know the names, and so you don't really think about it. And, and that's my default, too. But um, if you notice, there's a couple things going on. Do you see how in Amos, if you just look at it, um, you get for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four for three transgressions of Tyre and for four okay you've got really a couple things going on that are really neat uh, three in in scripture is generally a number of fullness or completeness and so it's saying not just for the completeness but like a step beyond they've gone they've gone over the line they've crossed the line with their sin and so i 'm going to punish them so you have that going on but then also uh, use your map if and and sort of see you've got Damascus. Damascus is going to be up in the upper right hand corner. Do you see it up there? Uh, it's a little small, sorry. But upper right hand corner, you have Damascus. For three transgressions of for Gaza and for four, Gaza is going to be in your bottom left hand corner. Do you see that? So you've got those two. Then you've got um, for three transgressions of Tyre. Tyre is going to be in your top left hand corner, up on the coast. Then you've got for three transgressions of Edom and for four, very bottom towards the right. You see that? Okay. By the way, Amos, sorry, this was key that I didn't mention. Amos is writing to Israel. You see Israel in the middle and then Judah right below them. He's writing to Israel. For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, Ammon is on the middle right-hand side of your page. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, if you go down a bit from Ammon, you see Moab there. So now we've hit everybody surrounding Judah and Israel. And by the way, we're at six nations mentioned so far. In the Bible, seven is is also a number signifying completeness, fullness. In uh, literature, you would write seven kind of stanzas, then be done. So here comes the seventh one. And Israel at this point is going, yeah, get them, get them, get them. This is great. For three transgressions of Israel and for four. Now you've got every single person surrounding. Oh, oops. I blew the punchline. Three transgressions of Judah. You've got everyone surrounding Israel. He's listed everyone surrounding Israel. And it's the seventh one. And it's the final one. And yeah, get them, Lord. And then it's like, oh, wait, shocker. There's eight in this one. And guess who it is? For three transgressions of Israel. And for four. And so just, I don't know, I just wanted to highlight, the Bible has really neat literary design and and function. And going and looking up place names sounds boring, but sometimes it can yield... Some of the most beautiful things and help you really understand scripture. So, Amos is going point by point. Uh, he's giving these and showing that God is not judging for no reason. Um, you can even see it in uh, chapter 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to me? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion crowd from his den if he has nothing, has taken nothing? He's going through and saying, there's cause and effect. Israel, this isn't just that nothing's gone wrong and I'm being harsh on you. No, there's cause and effect here. You have done wrong. And he walks through um, what they have done wrong. Chapter 9, I just want to mention um, before we move on from Amos. Chapter 9. He gives the solution at the end. Um, gives the solution and he says, in that day, verse 11 of chapter 9, in that day, a future day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. Oh, uh, Amos talks about a large earthquake that was happening as judgment. And then he uses that to say, David's house isn't a house anymore. God has shaken it. God has taken the line that's going to bring the person who will save the world. He's, now it's just a, a tent. A booth is a tent. Now it's just a tent out in the wilderness. The booth of David that is fallen. And I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Um, and and let's also read verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills flow with it. We talked about this before, but what God is saying, I'm going to rebuild David's line. I'm going to wipe it. Wipe it clean, start over, and someone will come who can repair its, uh, its breaches, its ruins, and who will restore creation to what it should have been. That's the idea of uh, you plant the seed, and there's so much yield that by the time you harvest it, it's time to plant again. You can't keep up because the yield is so bountiful. The world is finally working how it is supposed to work. And, and Amos says, yeah, judgment is coming. Yes, it's fair, but there will be a day when it is... Um, when it is all as it should be and that will happen through this one who can take David's dynasty, put it on his shoulders and, and make it right. You so do you think in modern Israel today, they take that as if their current uh, successful nation as a fulfillment of, of this I don't know how they take that. That's oh. a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh yeah, I, I do know that they, the thing I guess that is most laughable to a Jewish person is that the Messiah could unite all Jews. That's just laughable, like, nah. he restore creation, yeah, sure, we knew that, but rest, unite all Jews, no, never. Um, and so this idea that he will take the Davidic dynasty, put it on his shoulders, restore it, that's crazy to them. Um, good question, I I don't know, I wonder how they would, what they'd do with that. Um Hosea, we're so on to Hosea. Oops. Okay, Hosea. Uh, in Hosea, he starts to pull out this idea um, that is going to be a major theme through especially the New Testament, and I, I think I've mentioned it, but maybe not a whole lot. He pulls out that Hosea brings out this idea of a new Exodus or a second Exodus. And what what Hosea is starting to describe is that the exile is is mirrored, and it's mirrored this way through all the Old Testament, that even, even as they're coming out of the first Exodus, that God says if you disobey my covenant, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, basically. And, and by that, he means it, the exile is like a second slavery in Egypt. And what that necessitates, then, is a second and final exodus, that God is going to, to dramatically rescue his people once again. And Hosea also highlights the love of God. Hosea is a beautiful picture of, of how God's love works and looks um. There is. Uh, I want to read for you. Let me see here. He paints a picture of God being a faithful husband and Israel being an unfaithful wife who um, commits adultery, serial adultery, and. Uh, but the way he describes it is that. As she's trying to run away from him and go after her other lovers, God is going to put walls around her to push her to him. He is so loving that he takes away all the things that she is trying to find so that she will say in verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And if you uh, keep going forward, what's really beautiful, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2. God says, therefore, behold, I will, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. That wilderness is always supposed to key in your mind to the exodus. It's redoing of this exodus. I'll take her back to the wilderness where we started our relationship and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. A place that was known for um, rebellion is now a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The love of God for his people is such, and, and if we're believers, we're encapsulated, we're grafted in as his people, so we can know the love of God for us, the love of God for his people, is such that he will, if you try to run away from him, he'll bar your way in and force you back to him in the best way possible. Um, and, and so it's just a pursuing love that never gives up. It never uh, runs out. It, it's really a, an incredible, beautiful thing. He, he says, um, he, he continues this idea of um, sort of starting things over uh, throughout the rest of the book. Let me, the last, I do want to hit in chapter 13. Um, what what uh, he's going to do throughout the rest of the book is kind of show that this idea of God's love is going to lead God to rescuing his people once again, the whole second exodus thing. And so um, that's when you get towards the end in chapter 13, verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Uh, that that rings a bell, doesn't it? Paul quotes that. And, and so... Uh, when we read our New Testament, the apostles and the prophets, they're deep thinkers and theologians, and Paul is pulling this whole new Exodus idea and saying, this is what Jesus has accomplished. This is what God is doing through Jesus. He's leading his people on this second Exodus, and, and he quotes this to say, this is it. This is God. The, um, the way one of my professors says it, and, and I can't say it better than this, is um, marriage is till death do us part, God's love is that death shall never do us part. God is saying, even in death I will rescue you. There's nothing that can overcome my love. Um, that, that is the picture that Hosea shows us, and it's, it's awesome. So Hosea highlights God's love in the New Exodus, and we are on to Micah. Micah. where he's speaking on like in Amos, and all these references to it seems like he's speaking just to the Jews. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that he's actually speaking to mankind, humankind? Uh, pers- some people would be fine broadening it. I'd personally be careful about that. Mm-hmm. I do. So, to tip my hand, I feel like... Um, okay, I actually did want to talk about this. I think, as especially in our American culture we tend to want the Bible to have a direct application to us and even in our indirect applications we still want to like wedge ourselves in and I think there's something profound about realizing that we can worship God and have deep application even when he's doing something to someone else if that makes sense and so uh, at least most of the time when I read these passages what I'm understanding is that God is putting himself on display putting his love on display and it might not necessarily be that you know God is talking that um, when God says, we'll get to it in Zechariah, but when God says, I'm going to come back on the Mount of Olives, I'm going to rip it in half. You're going to run to me. I don't know that that I'm going to run to him, but I'm still going to worship him for the fact that I see this storyline of how he's cared for his people, Israel. From all the way from Abraham to the end. And it's it's that romance story that, wow, he never forsook them. He never, he he was always faithful. And then we, but we also know that we've talked about like in Isaiah, the Assyrians are included, the Egyptians are included. He's a missionary God. And so of course we're grafted in. And in one sense, we're, we are a part of his people because we, we are grafted in. Yet I do think there, um, that I don't read these and think, oh, that's not going to happen in the future. I, I, I'm rambling now. <laughs> maybe that was helpful, maybe not. Um, maybe when we get there, I'll, I'll flush it out a little bit more. I think we need to be careful about how we apply scripture. Um, Micah. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh. And he comes in, he's sort of like the... Uh, A humble street preacher that's going in and saying, your view of God is way too low, Israel. And he exalts God and he shows uh, what a high view of God looks like. But what he also emphasizes is that um, in, in... Chapter 1, verse 15. uh, He says, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshaw. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam is where uh, David's dynasty starts. And what what Micah is saying is, God is going to start this Davidic dynasty over. He's going to start it over. And this is actually where we get, he's going to, basically God is going to cancel out some of, uh, no, that's not the right wording. God is going to, wipe the slate clean on the Davidic dynasty. And this is where we get in chapter 5, verse 2. This is our, our Christmas verse. Um, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So what what we do talk about, and we should talk about, is that Bethlehem was where Jesus was born, Yes. And it's significant in one sense because does that prove prophecy? Yeah, it does. It, it, but it's more than that. Because what what Micah is saying is that, well, where, what's the significance of Bethlehem before Jesus? Do you know? David's, David's city. And so Micah's making this point, if he's going to restart the Davidic dynasty... That Jesus is going to be born in the same town as David, to be a new David, to restart the Davidic line. And so, um, again, when we read that, that whole theology plays in, and now we start to see that kind of, it's like we read the New Testament in in stereo, in 3D, um, because we realize, okay, uh, it's not just... Hey, here's a prophecy. It was fulfilled later. Great, we know scripture's true. Yeah, that's true. But it's that whole theology of Jesus is this new David who's going to ensure God's promises, make sure they come to pass, uh, and be the savior of the world. After Micah, we're going to move to Nahum. Uh, did I want to hit? It? No, let's keep. Let's go to Nahum. Nahum's name means comfort. Um, This is basically... Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he wanted them to be judged, and then they weren't. But what we find out in Nahum is that, unfortunately, they they didn't stick with their repentance. And so this is like Jonah's wish coming true. Uh, They do get judged. And... um, he, Nahum plays off of Isaiah, and basically, I don't know if you remember this part, but uh, Isaiah sort of sets up this scheme in the middle of the book where he says, God is going to judge all these nations in all these different ways, and when the first one falls, it's like a domino so that you know that they'll all happen and all of history will go God's way. And Nahum is sort of the the first domino. And so he's he's portraying that This is the judgment that's happening against Nineveh. And if this happens, you can be sure that all of God's judgment throughout history will happen leading to that day of the Lord that we talked about. That's Nahum. Zephaniah. Zephaniah means hidden treasure. That's what his name means. Um, And we're going to hit three verses real quickly here. In 1, 4, God says, I will stretch out. Well, hold on. The point of the book. Uh, is there anything that good that can come out of exile? God, you're sending us away. God, you're, you're decimating the temple. You're decimating Jerusalem. Everything is being defiled. Our relationship looks like it's over. Are you going to use this for good? How are you going to bring good out of this? And he, here comes Zephaniah and says, there is a hidden treasure in God's judgment. And it's sort of two-sided. And here's the, here's really, we'll say three-sided even. Here's some of the hidden treasure that comes out of judgment. Chapter 1, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That doesn't sound good. That's judgment. But it says, And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. What what God is saying is my judgment comes to purify and to cleanse. I'm taking the idols away. I'm getting all the bad stuff out. It's like, uh, I'm not sure that I have a great analogy off the top of my head. It's like, Cleaning your kitchen. Like, yes, you scour the countertop, and you're hard, and you're rough, and you can take away too much material if, if you scrub too hard. But but that makes it clean and fresh and beautiful, and that's what God's judgment is doing. That's what Zephaniah is showing. So one aspect is how he's, his judgment is cleansing. That's the good that comes out of it. Also, chapter 2, verse 3, the hidden treasure is that, look at, look at verse 3. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do his just command, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden, chapter 2, verse 3, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. That's a wordplay on his own name. The idea is this, the hidden treasure, one part of it is that if you repent and you turn to the Lord, you will be hidden from his wrath on the day that it comes. You're the hidden treasure, in a sense. But, the greatest hidden treasure that comes in judgment of all, is what comes as a result of it. When when God purifies and takes away all the idols, judges sin, keeps his own people for himself, and at the end of it, chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God's going to sing. God's going to sing over his people. I don't know what to say about that. It's too I I don't have anything to say to paint a picture beautiful enough. God will exult over you with loud singing. That's the treasure in judgment. Judgment is terrible. But for those who repent, they will be hidden from it. And one day God will sing over his people. We get to be a part of that if we trust in him. Zephaniah, let's go to Habakkuk. Let me see, are we going to make it? I don't think we're quite going to make it. Yeah. Should Should we stop here? A lot is let's one? stop here yeah yeah. Um, yeah I had an idea about yeah so let's stop here yeah I have a quick question can yeah can you speak really quick about like canon and like what I guess so we're going through it mm-hmm. chronologically but mm-hmm. maybe why is it set up as it is is there a theological like ooh why is it arranged the way it is yeah uh, the short answer is I don't know <laughs> I'll look into it okay. Usually, there's a theological purpose behind the way the Hebrews put the scripture. Mm-hmm. I know there is from other portions. I don't know for this one. Yeah, sorry about that. Good question. For the minor prophets, I believe the answer is yes. I'd have to double check, but I What's believe. It's, not all right. Yeah, not yeah, yeah, I believe so. Well, Eastern thought is not chronological. That's true. Yeah. Eastern thought is. Let's, um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, the richness and depth and beauty with which you've spoken to us. Um, help us not to fixate and end on just what you've said, but to get to realize that all of that points us to you and to a person. Um, we want to love you and delight in you uh, and treasure you. And Lord, we worship you and we thank you for um, all that you are. And Lord, help us. Help us to be patient and to be content with where you have us in our knowledge and our understanding of your word. Help us to be always growing, but to be content with where you have us. Um, Lord, let us press on to know you more. Please open our eyes, illumine our minds, so that we can um, grasp the heights of, of who you are and the beauty of, of who you are. We praise you and we worship you. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Andrew was talking about the humble service.